0: listening to Tech Reads, interviews with emerging technology thought leaders. Our sponsor is SoftTech, the premier technology trade association that has been serving Northern Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County since 1997. Our mission is to create SoftTech moments where people connect, explore ideas, and create new business opportunities. Learn more at SOFTEC.org.
1: Everyone, this is Brian Schwartz, and this is the latest episode of Tech Reads podcast, where we interview uh, authors who've written books in technical and leadership uh, genres. And uh, myself, I never actually talk about myself in this podcast. I realized as I listened to a few, but um, I've been in book publishing for 14 years now. And uh, our guest today, David Giltner, was actually one of my early clients. Um, he took on the challenge of interviewing people uh, for a uh, series that I had published called 50 Interviews. Uh, he didn't do 50. We were breaking the books into smaller uh, volumes by the time we figured out what was profitable. But I'm very excited that he's continued and, and kind of fulfilled the dream of 50 Interviews, which is that if you really didn't know where you wanted to go, well, let's say you want to write a book, but you're not sure what you want to write about, What a great opportunity to go talk to people and take those interviews and put those into a book. Uh, His latest book is um, called It's a Game, Not a Formula, How to Succeed as a Scientist Working in the Private Sector. Um, He has been traveling around the world ever since he published the first book that I helped him with, Turning Science into Things People Need, um, for the last really 10 plus years, and has and ultimately launched his own uh, brand and business in 2017 called Turning Science, where he uh, provides training and resources. He'll talk a little bit more about that um, to people who want to make that transition from academia to um, enterprise. And he's a super smart guy. He's got a PhD um, in physics. He holds seven patents. That's a pretty impressive accomplishment without uh, doubt. And uh, he lives in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and somewhere that a lot of us uh, really envy. So Dave, uh, why don't you take it from here? And then we've got some questions. We've got a live studio audience today. We've got a few people on zoom and this will be made available to the rest of you as a podcast.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks Brian. I mean, this is really a great opportunity. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak about my book. Of course, it's also great to connect with you again. And I really, you know, thank you once again for the opportunity to publish my first book, uh, Turning Science into Things People Need, because it was really, that really did set me on this whole path, uh, you know, as you say, traveling, speaking, and through that, I realized there was a bigger thing here, and that's what's in my second book, a bigger topic to write about, so that's what we can talk about. Today, and I'm actually working on a third book, which will uh, allow me to do a lot of the long-form interviews, which, again, was kind of your influence. You know, the, I, I did a lot of interviews for this second book that we're talking about today, but I really just put a lot of excerpts in it because it had a lot of my own content. My third book will go back to the long-form interviews that I started with you, at least some of that, as well as my own content. So anyway, so thank you for that. Yeah, this uh, this book, It's a Game, Not a Formula really encompasses a lot of what I learned over the last, I don't know, let's say 10 plus years of traveling and speaking to scientists. And uh, the focus is really scientists who work in the private sector. And it it really comes from my own background. Uh, You mentioned I have a PhD in physics, started with, uh, I went right into industry and started working there. But one of the big things that I've learned and is this kind of the philosophy behind everything I do now in the title of this book is it's a game, not a formula. What do I mean by that? Well, scientists in particular, but I think all of us tend to look for the right way to do things. This is actually something that starts when we're early in school, you go to school and you learn that, Hey, if I, they give me a test and I answer all the questions, right, I'll get the right answer. I get an A. And if I, Get an A on all the tests, they give you an A in the class and you kind of learn you're looking for the right answer. And this goes all the way up into university. If you go to college and on beyond, they give you a list of classes. And if you pass all those classes, they say, we'll give you the degree that you're looking for. And we tend to think in this right answer, or this right way or formula or maybe recipe or checklist way of looking. But the thing that I've learned over and over. And I like what I like about this phrase, it's a game, not a formula, is it just reminds me that's not the way, well, it's not the way life works. And it's certainly not the way business works. And and so, you know, if I'm focusing on scientists, it really helps them understand they're in a different environment. And I use it all the time to remind myself. Um, And there are kind of three reasons I say it's like a game instead of a right answer. One is there is no single right answer to most of the things you're looking for, right? It's not like a formula. There are a lot of ways you can do a lot of things. And if you spend your time looking for the right answer, you're going to miss out on the opportunity. The second is that you have to take risks Uh, in business and in your career. Much like a game, you have to, you know, you have to take a shot and you may miss. You have to play your hand, you may lose. You have to move your chess piece. In any game, there is risk where you have to take a step and you don't know the outcome. It's not really the goal of science. Ultimately what we're trying to do is understand the universe so that we can predict what's going to happen and turn it into a formula or a theory. And then the third is that I say knowledge is not enough, right? We're used to the more we learn, the more, uh, value we have. And certainly knowledge is power, no question about it. But this environment we have to take risks and you sometimes, you often don't know the right answer. Uh, knowledge only has so much value, and there's a lot of value in being able to take that risk. Experienced business people know that. People who are experienced at the game of life know that. But sometimes we scientists, because of all of our training and finding the right answer, it can, be, it can be a challenge to make that shift. So that's really at, at its heart what the whole book is about from a career standpoint. Well, I love
1: the fact that you've reframed the idea of game. So I'll be honest with you. My perspective of when I heard game, when I think of game, I'm like, it's not a game. It's a freaking serious business. And, you know, you're not going to take risks if you feel that you're going to be annihilated by the result, but if it's a game, so you, that's part of playing a game. If you're a sore loser and you ups, get upset every time somebody beats you or you fail at what you do or strategy doesn't work, um, it's just a game. And I think that that's an interesting way to to flip the maybe negative connotation that, you know, it's it should be, it's not a game and don't play games, Dave. This is like serious business and lives are at stake here. No, most of us are not in the business of saving lives. You know, that's the, the thing I've learned. But I think one thing I've been sort of thinking a lot about lately are these patterns or mental models that we have a tendency to fall into, and I'm talking just a lot of self-reflection in the last couple of years. What are some of the mental models that scientists must overcome to succeed in business and move from the lab to the boardroom?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So certainly one of them, I would say, is looking for that right answer. Now, I will break apart the technical aspects of our work because that's still looking for the right answer, looking for a formula. And everything else about or work because you know if you're in business so much of it involves human beings and other things that are unpredictable you know the behavior of our customers the behavior of our business partners the behavior of all the human beings in our company who have private lives we tend to think if i just get enough analysis i'll have the right answer that is a mental model that is probably the biggest one that we have to get over the other one that is also quite big but maybe not as big is the idea that we need to do it all ourselves. We say, well, where does that come from? We scientists tend to be very independent, if you think of a Ph.D. degree, you know, this kind of the typical scientist, Ph.D. in science, that the hallmark of that is that you were given a problem nobody else ever had solved and you did it yourself. And it can take years to do that. I was in graduate school for seven years after I had my bachelor's until I got my Ph.D working on the problem to solve it yourself. Now, not that you can't get advice and help and other things, but you know, at the end of that, you stand up and you defend your dissertation and you need to understand it all. You, it's your project, you're responsible for it. It's excellent training. It, You know, the hallmark of a PhD scientist is independent learner and independent problem solver, but when you get out of that academic research environment and business is an excellent example, you know, experienced business, business people know this. Well, you can't possibly know everything. And it seems you, sport. It, yeah. And if you talk to an executive, for example, that's where you see a big contrast, they know very well, Hey, I don't have to do it all. I need to get people to help me. And that's a real contrast. So, yeah, you know, uh, that's- that getting that's that other model, get, Stop feeling you have to do it all yourself and look for help. Yeah,
1: no, it's a very, very valuable perspective you've gained is, is the fact that it's a team sport. If it's a game, you don't win the game alone, especially in a team sport. And you'll get to the five-yard line maybe, but getting over the goal line is, is, requires others as well. And you've got to pass the ball. Um,
2: yep. Yeah, I mean, a game you play all on your own is more like a puzzle, right? You can do a crossword puzzle on your own, but that's not really a game. Gain this um, yeah, yeah, no. In so in a startup skull,
1: a startup culture, very much the mantra is fail fast and fail often. What can scientists do to overcome that hurdle of making the decision before they have all the data? Because I think that's you were sort of hitting on is is one of the challenges,
2: right? Yeah. So that maybe if I were to say, what's the third mental model <laughs> to get over? That gets right to what you're suggesting. Now we also struggle to decide quickly. And this comes from, so if you back up, you say academic research, which is where we're trained is about finding the right answer. And certainty is very important You think about how do we communicate with the world Well, you publish a paper, but you don't do that until you're pretty certain. You've done, you know, months, probably years of work on this. You've double checked it. You've had other people look at it and you're certain that's not the way business moves forward you have to speed is important if you're doing anything interesting other people are competing against you they're trying to do it too and you have to move fast plus you have customers that need things on a certain time frame so to your point there are decisions you have to make and you don't have all the data you need the model i encourage is think about it as there there is no right answer on you these. now stop looking for the right answer treat it as though there is no right answer and the technique that I, or the tactic that i suggest, how do you make a decision when you don't have all the data? Well, just consider there is no right answer. And the technique that I teach is, if you get to where you've got two, maybe three options, you've done enough analysis, you got rid of the dumb ideas, right? Or the things that you know won't work. That's good. Analysis is good, but inevitably you've got two or three and you're sitting there thinking, I don't know which of these is going to be best. I suggest make a decision, And then work to make your choice the right decision. Hmm. People sometimes think about that a bit. It's like, work to make it the right decision. No, I want to know the right decision. I want to know the right choice. (laughs) That actually, it it,
1: it seems to counter the fact that I've had this belief, you plan your work and work your plan. Mm -hmm. Like that's the the recipe for success. And the people who succeed are the ones who stick to their plan. Like just think about your day. You know, you have a list of things you you plan to do. And uh, anyway, but that, that, that throws a little bit of a wrench in the, you're basically saying adapt your workday around,
2: around what? Well, so great question. So uh, another thing I'll say, when you talk about planning, I think planning is, is really very important. uh, And I have a number of things I can say about that, but I'm talking more about, if you think of of an important decision. And you want to move forward. You want to design your plan. You know what? Uh, it could be a career decision. It could be in the private sector. One of the things I run into the most. Here's a good example for a scientist. Manager at CEO comes to them and says, okay, we're releasing a new product and we have three different options for the technology for this. Uh, you as the expert, I need you to look at them and decide which is the best path forward. And, and the classic, the stereotypical PhD comes back ceo comes back in three weeks and says okay what's the right one and they say well i'm not sure yet i need i need to collect more data and do more analysis ceos thinking look i need you to pick something and we'll develop it as we go forward right we'll we'll make that work I, i don't expect one of them to be the absolute right solution i just need to know what's probably the best and we will work it as we go well that work it as we go That's the plan, right? Once you decide, then you get everybody involved. There's a lot you can do once you make the decision, put together a plan, figure out how are we going to make this work? And and doesn't, you may have to change. You may, you may end up deciding, you know, this doesn't look like the best option. Once you get a year down the road or six months down the road and you may pivot, but it's more, when you're making that decision, that's the best you're going to know. There is no right answer. And if you keep looking for it, you're wasting time. So pick something that looks like a good answer, get your plan in place and get going on that because that's going to be your best path to success.
0: I wonder if I might jump, jump in for just a second and, and Please, Bob. make one comment. It, it strikes me, and I was thinking this as I'm reading your book, David, is that I rarely run into anything that has the right answer. Matter yeah. of fact, matter of fact, I've been in, in a CEO role for the last 30 years and never has a right answer landed on my desk. If there was a right answer, someone below me would have answered the question, taken a bow, taken the credit, and it would never make it to the desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing that's my that is an observation of mine is that I have never seen a plan survive. First contact with the market (laughs) okay it it, the market is infinitely more powerful than any of us and we can go into with a plan and it's nice to have something to deviate from but you better be ready to deviate because that's the problem i have with with people that that think they're too smart and think they know the right answer and the market kicks their ass to the street (laughs) yeah and so i i'm interested in in how you manage that that process because it just does not survive. Plans don't survive contact. Yeah. So you have to modify it. You
2: have to engage, adapt and overcome. Excellent input, Bob. And I, I completely agree with what you said there. One way I think of what I do is I bring the wisdom that a CEO like you and a lot of other experienced business people have to the scientist who has spent, you know, the early part of their career in a research lab, right? And now they're coming into business environment and they haven't had that experience learning to play the game that you probably got a lot earlier at a lot earlier age. You know, most people are 30 years old by the time they finish a PhD and get out into an industry job. Um, so boy, where to start uh, for planning, since we've talked about planning already, I think you're absolutely right. There's a phrase that I use often that planning is indispensable. Plans are useless and it is essentially a way of stating uh just that that you know planning is a very valuable activity but as you start moving forward on your plans working your plans things are going to change and you have to be willing to change them some people react to that and they say well then why plan i think that's an absurd approach i think planning is very useful but you need to be able to then adapt if you don't have a plan when things change you have no idea where you are and where to start so that is valuable but your point of there never being a right answer is also, I think that's exactly it. You know, business leaders think more in terms of probability than what's right and what's wrong. You know, what's likely to work? And then they start working it and figure out what goes and what what, what works out. Um, we're not used to that because, as scientists, because we, spent, we spend our careers looking for the right answer. So I think it's that insight. One of the things I like to say is I... I uh, kind of a way of simplifying the message I like to think of myself as a translator between MBA and PhD, you know, <laughs> people, people with the business experience, they know how the game is played. They know there are no right answers, right? Just like you say, know you have to be flexible. Um, you know, part of the reason I say just pick one and move forward is kind of, as you say, things are going to change once you get out into the market anyway. So how could you ever pick the right path forward? Just pick something that looks good get going and only then do you know the real issues. I, I like to say, so if you, if you're choosing between three choices and you're trying to analyze it, you're kind of pretending you can predict the future. And of course, there's some things we can predict, but there's a lot we can't. The real value is as you start moving forward. And when you start doing that now, instead of hypothetical problems, instead of trying to say what might go wrong and make this one option better than the other, that's when you run into real problems. Well, I know how to work with real problems. You know, I can get my team on it, and we can try to solve them. It doesn't mean we'll come up. We'll. we'll it'll be the best approach. We may decide, well, we've got to try something else. But that's the only way to make progress. Uh, as long as we're trying to make the decision, we're just looking at hypothetical problems, and I don't know what to do with that. So. Good insight, Bob. I think that's that's a. See, I, I Bob, you, I, you
1: have a few questions, right? Go ahead. I said say you have a couple of questions, could you, you just finish the book?
0: Well, I, I I just finished actually I have a half a chapter left, but okay. but uh it my observation of, of the book as I went through it is I started to look at it and said, you know, I've worked with this personality before. They weren't PhDs, they were college students. Wow. because a college student coming out thinks they know everything in in the world and they couldn't find their ass with both hands and a radar set mm-hmm. it,
1: that's
0: that's really the, the the trick to it is that it and i think it, it is the nature of school and and a phd is is kind of the pinnacle of that school process but it but it's all the way through school they're taught that the the all answers exist on a multiple choice question from A to D, and you know you pick one of those and that's that's the right answer. And they get out into the real world and they're faced with a marketing problem where every option is 20% correct. And, and uh, you know they get into this, as you say in the book, the analysis paralysis, which mm-hmm. which is, which is the, the classic syndrome you get with it and they're, they're gonna take three weeks to do what should be done in two days because they can't get over the, I have to be right. I have to be the smartest person in the room. I can't remember the last time I was the smartest person in the room. <laughs> I, know. I mean, I know. honest to God, <laughs> my job has always been to be the dumbest person in the room and get the smartest people in there. Yeah. And, well, and uh, that, that's what struck me when I, when I read the, the book was that if you took the word PhD out and replaced it with student, this is a guide to how to deal with with people coming out of college oh, because they have to be they have to be adapted to the environment because they just went from a budget environment to a profit and loss environment. And they haven't got a clue as to which way is up. Mm-hmm. And and so and I, I read that all through your book. You, you drove to that to that point. The, the difference is, you know, expenditures or investments, mm-hmm. you know, and and. I think that's really what, tri- what hit me with, with your book is that's really a guide for that whole personality type. The PhD just happens to be the pin, it happens to be the poster boy for the problem. But the problem is pretty universal. You get kids out of school who can't do the work because they can't make decisions.
2: I like the way you at the start of that you mentioned multiple choice questions because I do think school trains us for that right and not that there aren't essay questions and other things but I think that suggests that there's a right answer and if you know the right answer and you are the smartest in the room you will be successful and I think you're right at, at any at any age what I see is the PhD has that training the longest <laughs> and maybe the habits are the most ingrained, but I'm curious, have you worked with a spectrum from you know straight out of college to PhD? I'm curious with, if one is more easily trainable or, or not.
0: Well, the more training they've had, the more training they have to unhave.
2: That's the way I expected. Uh, so, <laughs> so you have
0: to you have to break the bad habits in in that in that process. And and they're just there's nothing wrong with what they what they went through or how they reacted in that environment. But I just took them out of one environment and put them in another environment and said now use the skills that you got from this other thing that's not related (laughs) Mm -hmm. and try to make try to make decisions here. And guess what? It's not multiple guess. You know, you can't eliminate two of the questions and pick between the other two and get 75% because
1: hey, you guess better than
0: average.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great
1: perspective. Bob, and I guess that that your military background has something to do with that, too, right? You think? (laughs) All the planning and all that goes out the window when you get into battle. Mm
0: -hmm. Which is probably the very rare places that you'll find the life and death decision. The rest Mm -hmm. of them just aren't that, I mean, you're probably going to survive making a bad decision. So make it, get over it. Mm -hmm. And a a mentor of mine many, many years ago said, you know, you got to look at this, as you said, as a game, David and he said would you be happy if you were a batter batting you know 570 of course you would you'd be ecstatic and yet that's about the odds you know the typical survival of of the of a startup business is about the same as you know a baseball player getting on base
2: Hmm.
0: so you know if if you're batting 270 as as a startup business hey you're you're you know hitting at the all-stars you know 400 that's
1: you know, that's legendary. <laughs> Dave, yeah. I wonder if you had a, a chapter in the book called like the gamification of science or, or is business the gamification of science? How would you interpret that? Because it seems like that has been for a while, a pretty hot button with the younger generation. You know, mm-hmm. they want to gamify everything. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's more about shifting this perspective that, hey, it's just the game, take it, you know, take some risks. But what if we did have a chapter in the book called the gamification uh, of science or how business is the gamification of science?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I think um, I would I, I like that. You're right. Gamification is kind of a, a real trend now. One thing it does is I know it drives involvement in apps. Right. It's a way to keep people involved and engaged. Um, And I think I probably would split the difference between academic research where you are looking for that right answer, but you say, well, Hey, the whole game of business is a game is now you're taking this technology. You think it's something that you think could help people. This is that turning science into things people need that I used in my first book title, right? And how are you going to do it? Well, there's no right way to do that. And, uh, that is absolutely, gamification, and I think that's a a great perspective and and maybe a good uh, future revision. I'll have to think about that as a...
1: Well, and let's let's dive into the question that came up uh, after I had written all the other questions, was making the shift from academia to business, and can you share some of the hard-earned lessons from the folks you interviewed specifically?
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, one I already mentioned is that independence um, versus interaction, and that can be a tough one. And a quote that I remember from a guy, so he is an entrepreneur, Uh, Bob mentioned startups. You know, this was a guy, he's a PhD biologist and I watched him pitching his company, Living Ink. And I thought, you know, it kind of sounds like maybe is that tattoo parlor or what is, you know, (laughs) turns out he's making ink out of algae. Uh, It's a better uh, environmental solution and a number of different advantages. But, and as he was talking about this to a business audience, right? he stopped and he said so you know one thing i learned in graduate school as you as you know i'm a phd biologist one thing i learned is that in some ways graduate school prepared me for the opposite of the real world it taught me to work alone and that's been one of the hardest things is breaking that habit I, it's, it's part of my identity and and i'm now i'm speaking for myself i know this i i remember this feeling of you have to be independent it's like who you are i can get that myself said, I have to break that habit, not only in the private sector, but absolutely as an entrepreneur, because I just cannot know everything. Right? So that's one of the big ones that we find. Bob, is your hand up again, I see? It, it, it is.
0: And, uh, and I, I'd like to share one statement that a lot of people make in, yeah. in business. You can't win a baseball game with 27 pitchers and this is what the superstar problem is i would much rather have 27 average people who can play all the positions than 27 pitchers no matter how good they are and and so it it is it's been my observation that, that the worst thing you can put onto a team is someone who knows it all or thinks they know it all and and that mindset that you know, that you, you are taught in school to go after, to have the right answer, to have, you know, that, that piece of it is really a,
2: um, really a deficit in the personality. It absolutely is. You know, so now maybe I'll talk about some of the managers I've interviewed because I've interviewed mostly scientists, but I've interviewed quite a few managers and they basically echo exactly what you're saying. Well, you read the book. I think you've seen the chapter that talks about that and the PhD stereotypes, right? You're so right. One in particular, one story I tell in particular was a guy that I was talking to back when I started turning science. And I had worked for him. He was the CEO of a company I would worked for five, six years earlier, and we were reconnecting over coffee to talk about turning science. And he was, I was asking how do scientists do transitioning into the private sector in your experience, and he said, "Dave, ninety percent of them they really struggle. They, you know, they, they really struggle to make that transition." And when I said, "Well, what's the toughest thing?" he echoed what you just said, Bob. They always have to be the smartest one in the room. They have to feel they know everything. I've seen a PhD physicist tell a, mechanic, a seasoned mechanical engineer a better way to design a part. It doesn't make any sense, you know, just because he spent some time in the machine shop. The mechanical engineer knows his stuff. It's kind of like, you know, if the pitcher were trying to tell, in your example, trying to tell the first baseman how to or you know an outfield of how to play. That does not work. It's a real deficit. But it comes from that feeling of having to know it all. Yeah, so it's a good we've, one.
1: we've got uh Buddy, John, and Rick in the room. So here's your guys' opportunity. Do you have any questions based on what we've heard so far? I know you haven't received the book and we'll talk a little bit about the uh, after the meeting, how to get yourself a review copy of this. But um Based on what you've heard and your own experiences, do you have any questions or comments for Dave?
0: Yeah, I view school as someplace where you go to aggregate a toolkit and we don't know what problems are going to be presented. And so therefore people have a different perspective from the same education of what their toolkit's all about. And so they bring different views to the problem. And I'm with Bob on 27 players that can play any position. That's my
1: take. It's about how they, and so the education is still valuable. It's
0: valuable. Yeah, it's giving the tool. It's valuable, but it doesn't provide you the solution to the problem that you don't know yet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, Rick, that's Bob, something. Bob, that is something that can be a real challenge is, is teaching people to solve problems they don't know about yet, right? That's a different – so much of what we do is solving problems that have already been answered. And I well, think that
1: uh, – and, and I can share from the academic standpoint, and because I work in books and publishing, is there's a lot of people out there who essentially take all these different top books on this, on this topic and they assimilate, if you will, or curate little bits and pieces from all these books. And guess what? They publish their own book. But all they've done is taken information from that they've gathered, but they haven't actually done the work. It it bothers me in the world of publishing because there's a lot of people touting all these things that you should do and need to do and how to do. But unless you're actually doing the work, you find out things are quite different and the challenges you run into. So I often tell my clients, hey, you want to hire someone who's in the trenches of this publishing business because it's changing constantly. Uh, and you have to be very cautious with the person who's giving you advice, who's only giving you advice based on other people's advice. Like it's a very dangerous thing. And I, that's why I, I shared with Dave sort of this three-phase concept is the philosophy, the conceptual tools, and the tactics. But, the, but there's a part of that where you have to test the knowledge that you have. And I think that the great opportunity for science, scientists who get into business is they finally get to test these theories, right? These ideas in the real world. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. thats the exciting part, I think. That as you transition, and a lot of people do that, right? They—they they kind of probably burn out or get tired with academia and want to go out in the real world. They may come back to academia, but they get some experience in the real world. And I think it benefits their students. My favorite professor in college was someone who came from the industry, mm-hmm. and everything he was sharing with us was rooted in experience, not just book knowledge.
2: Yeah, I think there's real value
0: in it. Go ahead. It, it, it's interesting. Uh, many years ago, I sold computer education product, video, CD-ROM, that, that type of stuff. And we used to chastise the, the producers all the time because they would produce products that we called hammers where they would teach someone how to use the tool but not what it's used for. So instead of teaching carpentry, they would caught t- hammers. And, and I think that's the, the kind of thing that you run into with it is in school, they teach you how to, how to be a hammer, but they don't teach you how to build something with it. So, you know, you leave school looking for nails <laughs> and everything looks like a nail because you, you learned hammer. And that's, I think, a, a way of, of kind of stepping back and looking at it is it's not just the tool, which, which could be the right answer. You can get a right answer for a tool, you can't really get a right answer for the process the carpentry itself that has an art to it it has mm-hmm. you know the the wood is inconsistent and the pieces aren't going to fit right and you know you, you're going to use the, the the tools and you're going to use them right but they have to be adjusted for what happens in the real world
1: yeah well right. how how they're going to be used. I think my issue is technical documentation generally because it's written by the developers who develop the software is they're not the ones actually using it. And oftentimes like a, a drug, people will use it for something totally different than what it was designed for. So take Microsoft word, for example, the documentation that I pull up on Microsoft's own website, it never seems to actually address the problem I'm trying to address do right in the real world, because it was written by the developers who created Microsoft word. Yeah. And, that's a huge flaw, I think, in the technical document world as technical writers.
2: I, I think that's a risk in product, you know, products of all kinds, frankly. And in, so, I, you know, I, we didn't talk about what I've done for the first 20 years of my career, but I did product development. And in that environment, we talk about the difference between verification testing and validation testing. Verification testing simply verifies that the device, the system, it could be the software, whatever the product is, meets the specifications that we set out to design validation testing is testing done where you actually use it the way the user intends it and the the nature of the things you come up with are very different to your point brian if somebody says well microsoft word has to do these things and then the programmers code it and then somebody goes through and tests spec by you know line by line and verifies it behaves that way they can say this is great and write instructions but they haven't even thought about what how does a standard a regular person actually use it you know how do they switch from another app to use it or cut something or move things around all these things they may not have even thought of and that's the stuff that actually matters so
1: well they should write a book with microsoft Word, so they know exactly
2: how microsoft Word that words that's a great idea how does that not happen <laughs> You know, Bob, I wanted to come back to another point you were talking about just real quick, um, you know, saying um, that the difference between teaching how to use a hammer and how to do carpentry. I think that's an excellent example. I think one of the problems is if you design, if you try to design education and say, how do we put lots of students in one room and teach them in mass, it's pretty hard to do something where there's variability like carpentry. It's easy to teach them how to use the tool because that's consistent and so. In designing something that scales well, you are not designing something that deals with uncertainty and reality well. And I think I I see that. I don't know what your thoughts are, but I see that as one of the problems. It's easier to create people who know how to use a hammer than it is to teach people. Well, the the problem is that the student comes out of
0: school and they know how the hammer works, so they think they know all the answers. Mm -hmm. And then they go to drive a nail and it splits the board. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't teach that. In there that you're supposed to use, you know, the grain going a certain way. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but it, but it's you know we see this all the time. I just went through this with a with a group that I'm working with in in a new business. In that we went through and looked at their their website environment, and it made perfect sense to them. And you expose someone who didn't grow up and do the development of that, and they're lost. They can't you know it goes off in all these nine different directions it's got all these fancy tools all over it yes. and they can't do a simple process they, they can't order the product yeah they can do, they can make all the changes to it in the world but they can't they can't figure out how to order the product that's, that's a pretty big deal, big deal. Mm-hmm. and yeah. and uh, i i remember early in my career i worked with IBM and they had a usability lab that that they tested the software in and they would actually film people from behind when they were first exposed to a software piece. And it was hilarious. I mean, it was a great comedy, but it was
1: serious business problem.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, well, and I think the, the video game companies have figured that out because they have people that do nothing but play the games that they basically, before the rest of us get on. So but they- Only get
0: those people who have that particular experience set can play that game. You have to learn the culture to play the game.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess that is true. At least though, they are looking at users, even if it's a subset in a particular. But right. you know, that they won't be successful at all if people can't figure out how to play the game. I mean, people just give it up and not use it. Yeah.
3: Hey, buddy, has a question. He's here in the room. Hey guys, no, I uh, I wanted to jump in because the whole tool analogy. Uh, I I've been out of academia for. Six seven years now, and I'm working as a mathematician in uh, educational technology, building assessment platforms for learning management systems. Um, I have a, kind of the opposite problem. I have spent years building um, not just a hammer, but a full-on bulldozer. But I'm but to stay in that fast-moving water that my company that that's their reference they like to use all the time to just keep moving. Uh, I'm being forced to use that, that software. To, as for that sledgehammer as a as a hammer so it, i have a very sophisticated software and i'm being forced to build multiple choice questions when i have a computer algebra system that can do equivalence testing on many different uh, mathematical expressions symbolically like i have a very great tool so i in my experience i've been having trouble uh i i don't know dealing with staying in the fast moving water just and, and building things that are um, kind of the thing the antithesis of, of what my my software is built for. So like the most basic use is still required
1: but there'll be times when it really needs to tap into the, all the bells
3: and whistles that you've designed is that what you're saying? Just- yeah and I, I have tons ton of long term goals and, and, and grand strategies for, for this for the capability of this software but time being spent to get into the, moving wa- the fast moving water and mm-hmm. um, we're a startup, so I mean, it's right. you know, it's sink or swim. But um, we have to put some of those goals aside and build something that I think is, is like an inferior product. Mm. And how do I manage that? Deal with that. <laughs> um, and that's something I've been struggling with. As you know, I, I I've been out of academia, like I said, for, since like 2017. But um, there's, there's inferior product. Provide a solution. That would be a question that I would ask.
0: Brian, you got a raised hand out there.
4: Please, Hi, Bob. Not- <laughs> it's me, Dottie. Hey, um, I'm the nail trying to figure out how to work with the hammer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Great way to leverage that analogy
4: there. <laughs> I mean, I'm the make windshield.
1: Sense. Sometimes you're the bug <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> because it's hard. You know, it's hard to see from the other side of it as well and you know we have sayings like properly planned projects and you know and even though when we go into it whatever job site I go into you know I go in with my plan but it's never the same you got to stay liquid everything's different once you start taking things apart and I uh, say so we do have to be very flexible. I tell myself constantly I have to adapt with the material it's not gonna adapt to me so um, but it's just interesting you know the hammer nail because um but the whole reason for me being here is because there is this massive separation between what you guys do and what i do Mm -hmm. but we need to be able to connect with each other on some level or to at least understand you know where it comes from or how it ends up
2: yeah well thanks for the input have you i'm curious have you Learned any uh, tactics we talk about you know <laughs> philosophy and tools and tactics? Have you learned any uh, tactics for how to bring I guess you know together with the technical team and, and function so you can get your plans working?
4: Well, not yet. and um, the reason why is because I'm just getting into this right now. they've got a lot of money going into colleges to teach construction. Mm-hmm. but it's not working out, and I want to somehow leverage that and you know maybe become assistant. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's still early.
2: Yeah, that's a great idea. One of the the things, the ways I like to work is by, and and I learned this, I guess, through my last job, because I spent a lot of time traveling with the CEO and talking to him. And so, you know, he had learned some technology, I'd learned a lot of business, but we were able to kind of investigate how did we come to these different views? What was, you know, how do we, how do we, what do we bring to the table? And i could talk about well here's why you know as a phd scientist me and the others in our company struggle to understand the business and struggle with these habits and he could describe how he saw his side and i find that's really valuable in communication uh you know instead of everyone kind of pushing well here's what i know back up a little bit and say well help me understand how you frame this problem not to use the Carpentry pun again, but uh, <laughs> how, how do you how do you approach this and how do you see it? And you know what? And that communication can be really valuable. So you're starting to see yourselves as members of a team. You know, clearly you know you have the same goal, but in that way, I think you can start to see where your different viewpoints maybe connect. Hopefully, oh,
1: I agree. So thanks for the input, Rick. Ooh. Rick had a comment here in slow. Uh, if um, you remember it, I have a comment
5: that's based on experience, and it's similar to what we're talking about, and maybe not similar. But I have to think about the time I graduated from Cal Poly Business Department with an undergraduate degree in finance. I immediately got a job as mainframe salesman with a very large company um, based in LA, where I was, and, and I was successful and did well for a few years. And that was nice. What was nice about it is that I spent my active times working with CEOs or chief financial officers of very large companies. It was a quick learning for me. And after a few years, I wanted to do something different. So I came back to Cal Poly to the MBA program. This sitting in the MBA program. I am now both a graduate from there and deal with a certain part of the world outside of the school. And I look around, and almost every person in there is a person who just graduated with an undergraduate degree, but probably didn't get a job or didn't know what they were doing. I'm driving a Mercedes in a three-piece suit, and every other person in the room is in shorts and a t-shirt and probably flip-flops and a Frisbee by their desk, and they aren't sure what's happening. And in those days, it was a big theater-type seating so that the professors came and went, you know, maybe in the... First half of the day on one day of the week was econ and the afternoon was marketing. The next day was human resources and so on. And I realized halfway through this, some of the kids didn't understand what was happening. Some thought they knew it all and didn't know why a professor was pointing in one direction. This continued for a while. So I got an okay from the school to allow me to take these kids, as I call them, to LA. And I took me a few weeks to set it up. I set up Three and a half days where morning and afternoon, we met with different companies on different subjects, and we were greatly taken care of. For example, at the time, there was just about to have a international steel strike. And so one of the companies that met us for the first half of the day with the CEO and a few of their officers was a large steel distributor, and they were having to make an economic decision. Do they pre-order too much steel in case the steel strike shuts things down? and pay the extra fee to have it on hand or do they not buy extra assuming the strike isn't going to happen and then get caught not being able to fill orders they were trying so they spent half a day with all of these real powerful executives explaining things and so we went through different in those days there weren't very many hiring agencies but i found a, an executive hiring agency that talked about what individuals succeed in companies and so on when we came back to school the following week there were far fewer shorts and t-shirts. There were actually some dress shirts and slacks and they started asking questions. And so from that point on, so I do that today. I'm the CEO of an international company and I live here in San Luis because that's my choice. And so every time I deal with somebody new or somebody wants to join with what we are doing, I take them where I'm going and include them in everything I'm doing because I can see right away what they think they know and what they think is gonna happen changes. So not only did I change the minds there, I suddenly realized I have to deal with this, what I think I know and what I should know and et cetera, better. And that's what I do.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's a great story. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. And it strikes me the example of what they were discussing, right? What do they do? That is a perfect example of a question that doesn't have a right answer, Right. All the analysis all the knowledge nothing could have told them the right answer in that you'd say do i do we do this and take this risk or do we do this and take this risk and maybe they can weigh the probabilities and the risk factors and make decide which is better but there's no right answer for that because you don't know yeah Yeah, yeah
1: now that that is a good perspective and i think that the problem is as you get older at least for me 52 is the amount of knowledge that you feel like you have and need to continue to try to keep up with is you just will never have it right. like you have to accept it's okay to know what you don't know and like live and move on and know that and trust that you've made it this far in life so chances are you're going to be able to adapt and and figure it out but i was going to say at cal poly my uh favorite class was again that industry guy he would bring in graduates Um, to come speak Mm -hmm. and talk about their real-world experiences. It was at that moment I realized, well, I really wanted what I wanted to do. But it wasn't until I had heard from people who were actually working in the real world on what they did that the light bulb went off. Because otherwise, it was all, like, theoretical and hypothesis, and you think you have an idea of what you want to do. But it was based on a summer job you had, like, you know, or an uncle or something that you envision. then you get into the practice and you realize, this isn't at all what I thought it was. And you made a horrible mistake because you just spent the last four years of your life getting a degree in something that it turns out you actually hate. So I think the sooner you can jump in and get real-world experience as a student, the much better off you'll be. So I, so
5: I, and I, I relate continue. that to the comment that I heard here about meeting with CEOs trying to take PhDs or people that know what they're doing and try yep. to get them to see a bigger... Mm-hmm. That's the world I live in now. That's a great,
2: it makes so 70,
5: sense. I'm 77 and I probably travel to 20 countries a year. Or so. oh, mm-hmm. that's, wow.
2: Real value. You know, one of the problems with career design uh, in our major and everything is we're trying to pick our career in college, for example, based on the coursework that we like. And Brian, to your point, that is the job is nothing at all like the coursework, generally speaking, right? And so, you know, <laughs> you have no idea. One of the, so. I was going to say,
1: or my wife, who basically thought she wanted to be a school teacher, they yeah. don't put you into student teaching until you're a senior, your last year of classes. And when she did that, she realized she hated it. <laughs> Too late. She's got a liberal studies degree, not a lot of options.
2: Yeah.
0: That's a great. Or if you want the classic question to ask someone, it's, it's tell me the exact temperature the office should be set to. <laughs> it, it's it's a problem everybody can relate to yeah and nobody can
1: get right
5: yeah <laughs> yeah that's a good point
1: well we're coming up on an hour i think we want to keep it under that dave you want to share anything else about um yourself how people can get a hold of you um anything else you want to know because people will be listening to this long after today
2: Sure. So two ways the best ways to get a hold of me, so my website turningscience.com, that's my business website. My personal website is davidmgiltner.com. And I'm still building that out, but those are the two best ways to get me. Uh, I'm most active on LinkedIn. That's where I post things. You know, I'm not a big social media hound. Uh there's just so much out there that doesn't seem to be as productive, but LinkedIn is the one place where I'm pretty active and, and that's a good place to go see uh, you know, the kinds of things that I think are important, the things that I share, the, you know, attempts at wisdom that I share, things like that. So that's the and best And it's thing. worth
1: mentioning that your book, although it's a little pricey in print because it's SPIE, which is um, what, Society of, what's that group?
2: It used to stand for Society of Photo Instrumentation Engineers.
1: Okay, so it was kind of an acad- trade paper for, for academia. But right. you published a Kindle book, the Kindle edition with my help. Yes, and that's available at a pretty deep discount.
2: Yes, that's right. And
1: and for the folks in the room, again, we're going to end the Zoom. We'll stop recording, but then we're going to talk about how you get a copy of re- a review copy of your book. And it's worth mentioning if someone's listening to this podcast, being in book publishing, and Dave would probably be happy to send you a review copy as long as you're willing to give them a review because that would sell. Absolutely, honest review. And and Bob's already done that, or we'll be doing that for Dave shortly. I plan to do the same but it's, um, it's the it's the one marketing expense that almost any author or publisher will always be able to justify as a review copy. It's Absolutely. how you get your books out there. So yeah. we'll make sure that we make that available to folks. Bob, do you have anything else to say on behalf of SoftTech? No, I I bought the
0: book. I didn't get a free copy, but... <laughs> well, thank you for but your the, support. That's because we write a review for the author and we need it to be a verified purchaser. Otherwise, there's it. problems in getting it getting our review published.
1: Yeah. Yes, and I would say if you buy a copy on Amazon, that Dave will probably be happy to reimburse you, especially if it's just the Kindle edition. So, yeah. all right. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and stop recording. Stand by. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I Appreciate the your time and your interest and uh, the exposure. Appreciate the feedback on the book. I, you know, One of the takeaways is that, as you've pointed out, I pointed it at a PhD scientist because that's where I have seen the problem be particularly acute in the private sector. But clearly, this is a broader issue. It relates to how we educate people uh, and, and at any level. Thank you for listening to Tech Reads, sponsored by SoftTech.
0: If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or want to suggest an author for a future episode, visit softtech at softec.org and click on the Tech Reads link.